Monks wear sensible shoes, and why wouldn't they? Chained to dying animals, just like the rest of us, charioteers under meth-white skies, while channelized waters brood under a bridge named after Bob Carey, whom I happen to admire very much, though when we met in a bland kitchen, he didn't seem so magnetic. The bridge bobs us a bit. Monks in sandals and socks or beat-up tennies chant and shake bells the color of henna over an effluviated waterway with concrete banks in September. Dozens snap selfies as these men who have nothing release it all in the form of a sachet of colored sand which ashes its way down to join the river on the way to Kansas City and Holy Points beyond. They are fat or short or mustachioed like so many spiritual beings, smiling then waving goodbye. Wait, I ask one, please bless my friend. He is very sad. They can't know how much he hates himself, but he gets a blessing and pep talk. When you are sad, everyone around you is sad. People who live in desert See beauty. Women in war cut their breasts to feed babies' blood. They climb into a van and float on radial tires to Cincinnati or somewhere equally enlightened, while we are left to roll back to uncomfortable homes in a comfortable car with silence and memory for once letting hope do the talking our sins sensibly forgiven. Nothing in the mirror but a river of road unspooling. The future a bell that won't stop ringing. Very, very awesome. Thank you so much for reading that that poem, Todd. Um, let me just dive right into... So you saw some monks do some shit. What, what like... <laughs> you, you talk about it in the poem, I have a sense, but like... Paint the picture. What the fuck? What was the occasion of this poem? Yeah, so every year these Tibetan monks come to Omaha and they go down to the Ohm Center in the old market um, and they they build a mandala, you know, which is um, pieces of colored sand which are laboriously arranged into this really intricate pattern. And, you know, visitors are free to see. I I hope they'll be back this fall. Uh, I don't know that they will be, but um, hopefully in the future they will be. Anyway, um, this is an ancient practice um, that ends after it's been made. It ends with them collecting, just sweeping away the sand, you know, conveying the impermanence of all things, right? A very Buddhist kind of notion, um, very poetic notion too, right? Um, and then they, they take the sand and, and we, we they go down to the river and they dump it off the bridge into the water, um, which again, you know, they say some prayers, they do some do some uh, chanting and so on. And um, it's, it's a memento mori, right? I mean, it's a celebration and it is an elegy for all these, all this beauty that we cannot hold on to and a great reminder that all things must pass, right? At the same time, you know, it's a very interesting thing where the monks are there and they're wearing, you know, these big yellow Tibetan hats and, and their saffron colored robes and they're all Tibetan, I mean, ethnically Tibetan. And then there's a few local people who've set this up and then some hangers on 
and it's it's funky you know it's it's there is some weird touristy element where this very cool practice is happening so that the monks can get some funding to promote the message and to travel the country and so on and promote tibetan buddhism and uh, promote the the faith and the tradition and the heritage and so on but at the same time there's all these um <laughs> tourists or what have you who are taking pictures the whole time and filming it and taking selfies with the monks afterward and sometimes with donations i mean i don't think it's impure but it's also a little ridiculous you know and, and i don't get into that too much in the poem maybe a little bit but you know and here it again is the sacred and the profane dialectic paul i mean that's the theme today yes um you know that they're these incredible interesting people who've dedicated their lives to compassion and impermanence who are just wearing tevas you know and uh it's just uh, it's so weird man and they're posing for selfies right and then and i'll give you the larger context of this poem i went to this because my friend had tried to kill himself a couple months before this and uh i was the one who um he and his wife and i are the ones who found him and got him he tried to drug overdose and alcohol and so on and we got him into a car and we got him to the er and um it's a very involved story but but that's the short version and and you know he wasn't really mentally well after that he was very strange and very self-hating and um, we were really concerned he was he was going to attempt suicide again and I was like, man, we got to go see the monks. I don't know what else to do with you, motherfucker. You know, if we go to these monks, maybe it'll help you. And so he agreed and his wife went. And we went down to see the monks. And it was a really... Um, and so the monks were leaving and we weren't engaging with them. And I, I literally did go to one and say, can you please bless my friend? He's very sad, you know. And then he said, the monks said these things. I'm really not a very imaginative writer. I don't really make shit up. I know that we have permission in poems. We can separate the speaker from the writer as far as we fucking want. But that's not something I ever really learned to do. So those are literally the things that the monks said. So I was wondering, because, yeah, those are very strange things <laughs> to say. But also they do have kind of like a cone-like monkish when you are sad, everyone around you is sad. People who live in desert see beauty. Women in war cut their breasts to feed babies' blood. When you are sad, everyone around you is sad. People who live in desert see beauty. Women in war cut their breasts to feed babies' blood. When you are sad, everyone around you is sad. People who live in desert see beauty. Women in war cut their breasts to feed babies' blood. But yeah, I don't know, that's funny what you say about, like, the, the speaker and how that's never been a thing that you've ever really been able to, like, erect within your own poetic apparatus, the so-called speaker. Uh, I remember, I remember, I wish I could remember the exact quote, but it was something like, um, actually, I might be able to find it. No, I'm not going to be able to find it. Um, but it was something like, 
you wouldn't expect Vincent Van Gogh's eyebrows to be blue, but people always expect the speaker of the poem to be the same person as the poet. And I was just like, that's the exact opposite of the truth to me. <laughs> like, like I do think Vincent Van Gogh's eyebrows are fucking blue, and I don't think yes. that it's fucking wise to assume that the speaker of the poem and the poet are completely different, separate beings. Like, that is deeply unwise to me. So, I don't know. I, I yeah. vibe with... I'm with you, dude. I remember I was at a reading uh, in grad school, and I mean, I was probably like 29 or something, and uh, and uh, this woman read a poem about how her ex-husband had a gold wing motorcycle, and I was like, I didn't know Gay's ex-husband had a gold wing. <laughs> and, uh, and my buddy John Ritz goes, well, you don't know that that's true, right? It could be a persona. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was the moment. I mean, dude, I was, I'm a late bloomer always, but I was 29 and I was like, the speaker isn't the writer. What? Uh, And uh, even though I learned it is theoretically possible, that's not how I write, you know? Uh, And it's really not how I read. I know that that is probably an intellectual block that I have, but I don't see it changing. And I mean, I actually urge my students to move beyond the sort of, um, beyond the, the 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 omnipresent self sure, yeah. you know but i don't i don't do it i mean i have mixed feelings <laughs> about it I, I think i take more issue with like the idea that the self should be completely vacated from one's conception of the speaker like i, I don't think that's particularly smart or interesting but you know having been a person who's written a lot of poems uh, about my personal life but then having the discussion of those poems become like kind of like discussions of me. Uh, I do get mm. it. Like it is kind of, it can be kind of like annoying where it's like, well, I mean, yeah, this is kind of like something that's true of my life, but also like, I'm not trying to uh, have a d- conversation about the choices I've made. I- I'd rather hear your thoughts about this <laughs> fucking poem, random people. So I don't know. It, it, there is some space where I feel that there should be some separation between like the, the author and the poem, but like a kind of total uh, cutting apart just doesn't make any fucking sense to me. Uh, but I think you're right to kind of point your students in the direction of like, yeah, let's, let's, let's make it about more than just ourselves. Cause you know, if that's all you're doing, I feel like there's some limit to that for sure. And you know, on a related note, I mean, I would say if they always write long poems, I'm like, why don't you try a short poem? If they always write short poems, why don't you try a long poem? If they always write about being depressed and cutting themselves, well, it's probably time to write about bacon brownies, you know? I mean, (laughs) I think especially when you're young, but probably always, um, you know, innovate, experiment, you know, go for breadth. Uh, Depth can come and, uh, you know, you can certainly become obsessive and you, you probably should. I, I don't, I think a lot of great artists are obsessive, you know, but, but when you're learning um, or when you're stuck or what have you, you know, now is the time to try something new. And again, I say that as a complete hypocrite. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's very important as an artist to run, to go with your flow, but also to go against it. You have to do both things. And I remember I had an experience where, uh, in in college, you know, you get these assignments and some of them really piss you off and some of them don't. But one that I hated was the ekphrastic poem, 
when we had to go to the fucking art museum and write a fucking poem about a fucking painting. The whole time I was just like, why am I doing this? This is so fucking stupid. Like, I hate that I have to do this. And I hated acrostic poetry for years after that. And then I was talking to Amanda and she had this really funny line, which was like, you know what? Like my approach to acrostic poetry is I just, if I like a painting, I describe it in a poem. And if the painting is awesome, then my poem is going to be just as awesome because all I'm doing is like describing an awesome painting. So why wouldn't my poem be awesome? And I was just like, holy shit, you're right. Like all it is, is just like transmitting your appreciation for something into another form. And then like that just opens you up. And then all of a sudden I'm writing a poems out my fucking ass. and I'm having the time of my life doing it. And then you realize that like, whatever your obsessions are, they're going to come out no matter what. Like yeah. I could be writing a poem about um, baking brownies, but if I'm like thinking a lot about cutting myself, like that'll come out in the brownie poem too. And, and maybe, but in a way that it never would have otherwise. And that's, what's like kind of cool is it's like, you're allowing your obsessions to take a new shape or a new form that they wouldn't otherwise take is I think another I love that. cool. Yeah. And you know, to make another callback, Denise, uh, banker, Denise, Cecilia banker, we talked about earlier once said to me, every portrait is a self portrait. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's the obverse, the inverse. I don't know if it's just the same thing, but I, I think, um, it echoes what you said. I mean, in making the portrait of, uh, you know, starry night via poem, you're making the portrait of Amanda Huckins. Exactly. You know? So, exactly. That's very cool. That is very cool. Um, let me see here. Let's see here. Look at my little card. Um, oh yeah, the one other thing I want to talk about with Mandala. This has been a pretty cool and various riff on this poem. But the final stanza, dude, is very like. It has a very sort of potent intensity to it. Um, it's very poetic, yet it's kind of like staccato in a way I, I don't know i'm very i'm very i'm very i find that final stanza to be very striking one of the most striking parts of any of these poems um and to me it's like it's sort of like unraveling the mystery while also like presenting it at the same time because because it's just like you know in a comfortable car with silence and memory for once letting hope do the talking like that feels like such a clear direction to go forward with. Uh, but, but then you sort of like confuse it too with, the, with the rest of the lines. And, and I don't know, I'm just like, I, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that stanza? Because could you read it again? And then could you talk about it? Sure, buddy. I'll try, man. Um, okay. So while we are left to roll back to uncomfortable homes in a comfortable car, with silence and memory for once, letting hope do the talking. Our sins sensibly forgiven. Nothing in the mirror but a river of road unspooling. The future a bell that won't stop ringing. Uh, yeah, that was pretty weird. That was pretty far out, man. Um, I don't remember writing this one. Um, I know that I was about a year and a half sober. Um and he was a couple months out of the suicide attempt. So it was a very intense time. Um, 
And so part of it was, you know, we had this profound and yet sort of quotidian experience with these monks. Like we did a thing we'd never done with people who were from very far away with an esoteric knowledge of religion and philosophy that we didn't have. So that was very rich. Um, but they were just dudes who climbed into a van and drove off, you know? Um, and then we got in our car. What is there to do at the end of a profound experience? It's like, you know, after my first Grateful Dead show and tripping acid for four hours, what we do? We drove home just like we would from any other show. But anyway, um, pardon my aside. So, and I say uncomfortable homes, you know, because we got to go, I got to go back to being a, uh, you know, a drunk and an addict who's trying to stay sober. And he's got to go back with the physical and emotional trauma of a recent suicide attempt. And I, I remember there wasn't a lot of talking. And, and so, you know, this is a chance to be hopeful. We've released something. The sand has been released into the water. He has hopefully briefly released his self-hate. I have released my addiction. So all of these chains to, to being, to the past are gone. And our sins are sensibly forgiven. You know, this is one, this is, this is 12 step kind of wisdom, right? Like <clears throat> regret avails us nothing. Um, so, okay, cool. And you could end there. You could end in the previous line, but the fact is, you know, you keep moving. Right. And so the mirror, there's the river in the mirror and there's just a little, it's a little visual echo or a sonic echo, a uh, temporal echo. It's the river behind us, but of course it's the road in the rear view mirror. There's that past that we're moving out of, but we'll always be there. And then, you know, we gotta, we gotta keep living, man. I mean, um, we are going to be faced with the profundity, the mystery of, time of life of death of our innermost selves who are at once apprehensible and completely unknowable the other who is at once apprehensible and unknowable our motives which are at once apprehensible and unknowable <laughs> you know there it is again i mean this bizarre paradox this series of paradoxes and to me, that ending is, um, it's meant to be sort of beautiful in a way, but also kind of unsettling, um, like future crises ahead. Um, and also future wonders, you know, I don't know. I think it's, um, it's a little bit beyond paraphrase there, but, um, I think it's meant to sort of encompass profundity and absurdity um as i always like to do you know i think that they're kin absolutely they're they're kin yeah no so, i think that you succeeded i mean what you said it's sort of beyond paraphrase that's absolutely true I, I feel like that moment is it's amazing how large it is yet there's only like 12 words that compose it y you know that's such a power of poetry to use a small number of words or utterances to create such a such a giant space in, in the imagination and I think it it does succeed beautifully in being both hopeful and unsettling it, it is very like intense and powerful I, I think it's I think it's a masterful moment um one final thought I wanted to say I just want to give you some props and some kudos uh I, I had an experience once where I was, I, I was, I was reading and I had had like a writer's group like the week before and my friend Elisa brought a poem and we talked about it. Standard experience. Then the reading 
uh, this dude, Matthias Felina, he read and he read a bunch of poems and then he like, he said like, Hey, this poem, I'm it's, it's for a friend of mine. And then he read the poem that Elisa had brought to writer's group like a few days prior, but he didn't say like, this is Elisa's poem. He didn't even make a point of saying, Hey, this is about Elisa, this moment that I'm having. He just sort of said it in this like private way. And I looked over at her because like I knew the poem and she had this like real like good smile on her face. You know what I mean? I could tell that the moment like meant something to her yet. It was like private and didn't call attention to her and how like cool that was. And I feel like your poem kind of does a similar thing with your friend where like you do refer to him, uh, you know, bless my friend. He's, he is very sad. He, he, they can't know how much he hates himself. Like, you know, that does allude directly to the struggle that you're discussing yeah, it doesn't like shine a bright fucking spotlight on it. And I, and I can imagine like your friend hearing this poem read and really getting a lot out of that experience, but that being able to simultaneously be like a private moment between you and him within the context of this public moment or whatever. And, and I don't know. I, I think that's like a cool thing that poems can do is they can have different meanings to different people. And I don't know. I just think this is like a really um, – admirable example of something like that because you know i don't think it's off limits to write about other people's pain i don't think anything's off limits necessarily but i feel like you do that in this poem in a really um reverent and respectful way that both like is real about what you were going through and what your friend was going through but also like keeps that sort of like sacred intimacy that that just the two of you share so i don't know i just wanted to give you some props for that because i think it's really cool Thank you, brother. Thank you. I think um, at the time I was pretty well steeped in the 12 steps and I think I was a better person. Probably the best person I've ever been was about <laughs> then. <laughs> I think, I think, Damn, that, dude. I mean, because dude, when he, he hit, I mean, he disappeared. The short version is he disappeared. His wife called me at four in the morning and she's like, so-and-so is gone. Where, I, what, and I'm like, oh my God, I'll be over there, you know? And, uh, and we just sat around the house and made calls and, you know, we waited for like four hours and, and, you know, I, again, not to, I guess I'm, see, I'm violating the fucking anonymity that we, you just praised, but in short, it was this giant clusterfuck. And I mean, I was able to be there to be funny, to be wise, to be patient, to be kind, to like be a great friend, to be the best I've ever been, you know, in a moment of absolute fucking terrifying crisis and keep this dude alive and um, help keep him alive. I'm not saying I saved his life. He would later say, you saved my life, you fucker. And I'm like, uh, you know, I'm not going to go that far. Other people were involved, chiefly you, but you know, your wife was there. We, we were all there and, and the medical people were there. But anyway, I was able to be there and be there in the poem and yet honor him. And, and I, I don't think I'm that fucking wise now. I think if this same thing happened now, um, I, I don't know that I would be able to shine in that moment. And I think, and I don't think in a poem I could shine like that either. And I, I'm not just fucking engaging in self-deprecation. I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm not doing 12 step work. I go to AA, but I'm kind of casual about it. I don't have the urgency of early sobriety. Um, I don't have the rigor of it. I don't have the same commitment to service, um, to honesty. I'm trying, I'm cognizant that I need to be those things and have those things and pursue those things, but it's just not as, um, you know, it's not as forceful. So 
sorry, I don't want to drag you down, bro, but I, I think it's worth it's worth <laughs> No, no, man. I mean that makes a lot of sense to me. And like I have um I, I haven't done twelve step. Like I have been to a couple meetings, but the whole kind of like I'm powerless idea was a really big turnoff to me early on. And I never felt quite like in the right place whenever I did go to a meeting. So I, I had a kind of negative uh, view of it all for a while, like not overall, but just for me personally, I was like, this isn't for me was kind of my feeling, but you, you kind of start to, you go through sobriety and it is a challenge because there is this, like there's the fucking depths of the early part where you have no fucking clue what you're doing. And like I said, like I said a million years ago, all your coping mechanisms that you've used your entire <laughs> life, you've literally set on fire and fucking thrown into the abyss. So like, you're, it's a struggle. But then you f- find your footing and all this energy that had previously just been like being pointlessly wasted on getting fucked up, it's just unlocked. And it's like, it's like you said, like you can have this rigor. You can have this like care and this power that you can like almost like it's almost like a laser beam that you can direct in any way that you wish but then like then something happens and i think they call it like the pink cloud or something in in the parlance of the program but like that feeling it it dissipates and then you're just kind of left with life and life is long and it's challenging and there are times when we're a better version of ourselves, and there are times when we're a worse version of ourselves. and it does take discipline to try and, you know, be the best person you can be. And sometimes that, that discipline is really hard to muster. So, so I don't know. I, I, I really didn't expect you to go in that direction, but I appreciate you saying that because I think that's a thing that kind of goes unsaid, like so much of our world and our lives, it's presented as like progress. Mm-hmm. Like you start here and then you progress to there and that's the way of things, but it's never that way. Life is fucking chaos. There is no straight line from better, from worse to better. It's always just like this clusterfuck and some people never even find better. And it's such a challenge and just being candid about your own personal struggle with that. I don't know. I think that's fucking cool. And to me, you know, I relate, but it's also inspiring. Cause it's like, I can think back to times when I was really strong and like, ready for something that was difficult and i can think the times when i just wasn't and you know you always want to be in that strong place but you know you really gotta work work at it so i don't know i think i think it's a good point and it's something that is just generally under discussed um i want to do one more poem let's do daily chant read daily chant for us it's on page 24 Gladly, my man. It begins with an epigraph from John McKernan. Keep your hatred lean and direct. Don't ever switch the target to yourself. You with the lazy eye. You and your yoga pants. Stop bending over, please. You with your ears crammed with sand. You in the thicket. You and your green eyes. You skinning deer. Go away. You grinding the memory from your mouth. You with fingers roaming the keyboard. Hey, you in the cloud car with smoke on your tongue. You Robinson. You too, Gilgamesh and Vane Oineman and Lancelot. You representative are. 
And you, General, retired with fat-ass pensions. You, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, too. You with the bindle burning in your pocket. You scanning the boiling parking lot with a hangover. No loitering. Wait your turn. You with the Bible on your desk. You who have yet to read a poem this year. You blowing leaves. You hitting snooze and spooning her. You with the chemo port. You drinking kava and you drinking wiper fluid. You in the ballet shoes. You polishing hospital floors. You on your ass in deepening snow. You folding origami aliens. You with your lump in your throat counting raindrops. You flying kites no tree can catch. Fuck yeah, dude. Um, who is John McKernan? John McKernan, dude, he is from Nebraska. He founded ABZ Press. He taught at like some school in West Virginia. I don't know if it was actually West Virginia University or what, but do you know ABZ Magazine? It's so fucking good. I, it might be done now, but um, it's a tiny little paperback journal. Um, ABZ. Top fucking notch, man. And um, I found it. I don't know, sitting around somewhere, I think at UNO, or I don't even remember where I got it. And I read it and I'm like, God, all these poems are brilliant. So, uh, Rich Wyatt has been in it from, uh, you know, he lives in Omaha, amazing poet. Um, so I submitted to them and they just ignored me. (laughs) They never even replied, which is fine. So John McKernan, um, founded that magazine is its editor and is a great, great fucking poet who I fucking love. And I read a poem of his that is somewhat like this. I mean, it, it's something, it's got the, the sort of rhythm. It's got the you or me or I, I don't, I don't remember exactly how it's set up, but it's not so different from this poem. So the epigraph is basically, you know, well, it's two things. One, it's me saying, yo, John, John McKernan, shout out, I'm not plagiarizing you. Or if I, I'm in discussion with you, and, uh, and B, I just think that's fucking great advice. Like there is cause for hatred, you know, but don't, don't let it get bloated, man. Don't let it consume everything. Point it right at Trump. Like don't point it at your, at your fucking neighbor or whatever. Um, and certainly don't, don't hate yourself. Like that is deeply toxic shit. So, and yet sort of inex, inescapable anyway. Um, and you know, I, I like to quote other poets. Um, I, I'm hopeful that somebody will go read him now because they'll read that and go, "God, that's fucking sweet." I want to read that guy. You know, I mean, it definitely caught my eye, and I was like, "Yeah, who the fuck is this guy?" And I was very curious to ask you about. It. And that's, I don't know, that's really awesome. I think that's so fucking great. To I don't know, like that's another. I mean, you know that I'm into this, but like, just the kind of local atmosphere of all the weirdos doing all the weird shit it's fucking cool to connect with other people on that level where it's just like oh yeah here's a dude he's connected to this shit which is like in my neighborhood and i want to tie a little string that connects us i think that's important work i think that's beautiful work um so you're saying that the form of the poem is somewhat borrowed from him this like kind of list style poem 
like t- tell me about your feelings about the form because I really like the the like list poem where there's like a certain repetitive element that just like keeps going and going and it creates this propulsion that I find to be very compelling. What's your feeling about the form of this poem? Yeah, I, I'm with you. I mean, I, 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 I love repetition. I think it has emphasis. It creates interesting cadence. Um, I think, you know, kids know when they repeat a word enough times, uh, it loses its meaning, right? It sort of gets uncoupled from this collective fiction that we have that the word car refers to an automobile. You know, you say car, 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 car. And haven't I haven't gotten there yet, but if I say it 50,000 more times, car will have no meaning. It will have no reference. It will just be this really trippy little sound, right? Um so I love that aspect of language. So I think that's one cool thing that happens when you say you a million times, right? It's just um, deeply weird. And it calls maybe just implicitly, but maybe explicitly too, it calls into question, uh, again, this sort of collective agreement we have that words actually mean things, you know, that they're not just, uh, you know, sounds that we have all agreed to apply to something or reference something. But anyway, um and yeah, they have emphasis, they have a cadence. Um, so there's lots of interesting formal components to repetition um, that are maybe its chief appeal. And then in this case, um, it's a way to celebrate um, the quirks of people, of their behavior, of their bodies, um, of the culture a way to take, you know, to use that phrase, taking inventory to not just take my own inventory, like we do in in 12 step programs, but to take the inventory of the tribe, to take the inventory of the city, to take the inventory of the family or whatever, you know, just to sort of call out all these interesting things and people. Um, I think that is the sort of main thrust of, of that piece. Very cool. Um, So it is kind of like, it's outward facing like you're sort of surveying the world and kind of presenting your view of things. Is that, is that a fair enough description? Yeah. But you know, even there, and here's another paradox and we've talked a lot about paradox, maybe not use that term, but you with the lazy eye, like I actually have a lazy eye. So I'm actually yelling at myself there. And when I read it, I kind of yell it, you know, I don't know why. Uh, I don't know how John McKernan reads his version, but, um, I feel like it's meant to be really emphatic and, um, you know, it'd be interesting. I've never read it quietly. I actually kind of wish I'd read it. You with the lazy eye. <laughs> it sounds a little pretentious. So I'm going to stop right now. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> well, I will say that I, when I re- have read the poem to myself, I've read it. I don't know if I've, uh, it's been much more subdued, uh, than the way you read it just now. And, I don't know. I found I found your your reading delightful and surprising. I was like, oh wow, yeah, this is like a fucking. It's like a a different kind of chant. Like this is a loud chant, not a fucking like meditative chant. Although it does have a certain meditative quality to it. But yeah, I don't know. I, I was I was really taken by the the approach you have to the poem. And I have certain poems where like, man, this poem I love to just yell this this baby out. 
But other people have been like, hmm. you could read this quieter or slower. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I could. And it would probably be cool. But that's just not how I feel it. You know what I mean? And maybe one day I right. will. But for now, I don't. And you just kind of got to go with. Yeah. You know, it, I mean, it is weird to yell it in a way because it has a, a pretty quiet, sentimental ending. And I kind of, I don't know about that ending. I think um, it's so sentimental, you know, and uh, it's a little nostalgic. It's a little sweet. It's a little syrupy, you know, I mean, arguably. So I don't know. Maybe I, if I, uh, if I kept thinking about it and tinkering with it, maybe I would have a yellier close and, uh, you know but uh, more vociferous, I should say, uh, exit. But, you know, so be it, man. Me, I mean, I, I think, again, y- you know, too much unity can really choke off um, discovery. So let me, let me step in here and defend the ending because I actually wanted to talk specifically about those last three lines. One thing that I really liked about it that, to me, it had a kind of a kind of um, deceptive or subversive unity to it is – you know, the chant, it's like a religious thing. It's like a prayer thing. It's many things, but that's part of, that's one way you can think about it. And this poem kind of has that quality to it, but you're right. The the, the end of the poem is kind of, kind of weird and uh, specific and it's a little more poetic maybe than other lines in the poem. But one thing that I, that I, when I was looking at it, that I thought about is, you're kind of like facing the sky at the end. Like you're talking about aliens, you're talking about rain and you're talking about kites. And I just found that to be such a cool kind of like, uh, evocation of the sky of the beyond of the greater power that like, to me, I don't know. I just love that ending where where it's just like, it's a little mysterious and you're kind of like, what the fuck is he talking about? But then you sort of look at it and you're like, oh, man, yeah, he's just like looking up. And to me, that's kind of like the the direction of the Like that's the narrative of the poem is like at first you're kind of looking in the mirror. Then you're like looking around and then you're like, you know, kind of casting judgment on things. But by the end, you're just kind of looking up and how fucking, I don't know, just intense and human that is you know so that's my uh that's my defense of the end i I think it i think it works i appreciate that man i appreciate that i you know i think um ted kuzer was my teacher and you know ted in certain ways is aesthetically retrograde there's no doubt about that um (laughs) but the dude he can write a memorable, beautiful poem that moves people. And he always said, you know, the poem should move into something higher or deeper at the end. And I certainly don't want every poem ever to move into something higher or deeper. How fucking tedious would that be? (laughs) If every poem ever did that, right. They can't all be anthems anthemic, you know, but, um, but yeah, I, I think, um, it's, it can be a really good move and you're right. I mean, I feel self-conscious about it now, but hearing you talk about it, I feel better about it. And I feel like there's uh, this exaltation, you know, this uh, opening up that is rich, you know, uh, I hope so anyway, man, holy smokes. Cause part of me also thinks kites like kites are cool, but the trees catching them. I mean, that's from, that's from, um, that's from Peanuts. <laughs> so is that, a little, is that a little cheesy? 
Well, maybe, man. Maybe it is. Nah, dude. <laughs> I'm it's, that's it's cool. It works. I mean, like, I mean, that's the thing is like, you're sure it's about peanuts, but it's like only you know that, you know. And I think that's cool how like it's almost like a little joke embedded within the poem that only that only you. I mean, I'm sure there's a few other psychos out there who are like oh my god that's fucking peanuts but like for the most part no one's gonna pick up on that and i think it's cool to have stuff in poems that are like little secrets or mysteries um yeah agreed man that that are not you know that are not some fucking zoroastrian profundity but you know are a comic strip you're right i agree those little nuggets secrets illusions uh, yeah, I mean, right. I mean, the, the thing we've kind of been talking about is that anything can fit under the hood of a poem any, and everything should be under it, you know? Um, so, right. Okay. I, I appreciate that, dude. Whenever I talk to you about writing, I mean, I always come away feeling uh, much more free, uninhibited, relaxed, less judgmental of self and other. And uh, that's fucking beautiful. For sure, so dude. Um, as for Mr. Kuzer, just to put some thoughts out there, you know, I gotta say, the dude writes fire poems. Like he is a true practitioner mm-hmm. of the art. He is a fucking poem head. He's a poem freak. I mean, he's written like God knows how many poems that dude has written. I've written a shitload of poems, and I take some measure of pride in that. But Ted Kuzer puts almost everyone to shame. He's written probably a billion fucking poems. It's ridiculous how many poems he's written. Now. Do I think that he has a very narrow and somewhat uh, limiting view of what poetry can or should be? Yes, I do. <laughs> I, I think that within the kind of culture of poetry, there's an argument to be made that he's a he's kind of a he, he's kind of a conservative figure who who cuts poetry off from people who might otherwise access it. But you know, on the other hand, he writes great poems. And that is like the most important thing of all, I think. I think that, and to your point, like, I don't know, I went on a little more of a rant than I wanted to, but to your point, uh, it is kind of cool to think, like, yeah, I don't want every poem to end with like a elevation or whatever, but thinking of that as like a, a possibility or like a way or an approach, I don't know, I do think it's kind of cool to have that in mind as like a potentiality or like, you know, just a tried and true method. It's a good tool to have in the toolbox. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we're trying to have, um, at the very least, a kind of transporting experience in a poem, right? We're not going to poetry for the reasons we go to email, we go to, you know, TikTok. I mean, maybe maybe they're not that different, actually. If, if we really, you know, hadn't already been talking four hours... I think we could probably dig pretty deep into that mind. Like, is it? How different is it? It's a really interesting question. But um, TikTok's a bad example because it is like a little poem, I suppose. Um, but, you know, we don't go to it for the same reason we go to hanging out in the lawn chair with the corona, I guess. It's stupid. I'm running out of juice. But uh, anyway, we go to it to be transported, right? So so there is a good argument for up for an opening, right? Another way he phrased it was um, good arguments build towards strength, right? They kind of land, they move toward, and you know, we do want some kind of payoff, not necessarily a a summary, not necessarily a little burp of feeling, 
but we want to kind of feel like, all right, sweet. We've reached the end of the line. And that felt like the end of the line, you know, um, maybe on the other hand, I, I love a poem that just kind of stops in the middle, like kind of quits coitus interruptus type shit can be really interesting too, because it is an endlessly versatile, uh, art form. Um, there's not ever going to be one way to do it, but, but I think, yeah, the dude knows what he's talking about. He knows how to write a certain poem better than anyone else can write that certain kind of poem. So we can extrapolate whatever we need from that. And that goes back to the 12 step thing. Take what you need and leave the rest, man. So that's a great bit of advice. You don't have to write about barbed wire and sage grouse and shit, but you can still write a poem that looks up at the end yeah, and that absolutely. can be really beautiful. Absolutely. Um, let me ask you one final question. Cause I, cause I too am running out of gas, as you said, and I really appreciate you again, sort of being the guinea pig with this and give me a sense of time and shit. Um, one thing that, that struck me about this poem is like, there's some autobi, there's some, there's some, bi there's some autobiography. There's some kind of universal stuff to some kind of like, like someone with a Bible on their desk. That's just kind of like everywhere. But there's also a kind of like, fuck you to the poem. Like just fuck off you fucking dummy. And like, it all is sort of coming from the <laughs> same pulse or the same voice and it kind of all becomes one energy. And I'm curious, like how you feel about that kind of pulling from disparate um, spaces of understanding and kind of channeling it all into one like laser beam. Like w w what do you make of that in this poem? I like that way you phrase it. Um, you know, I think that um, poetry, another generalization we could make that I think is pretty fair is that it gets a lot of its energy from associative leaps. And sometimes that means metaphor and simile. Um, but it also means image. Uh, it means movement. It means story. It means uh, form, right? It means repetition. I, you know, maybe it's Maybe it, it means so fucking much it means nothing. I don't know. But I, I think that's an important phrase when we think about what poems do and how they work. Um, <clears throat> so, so this makes a lot of associative leaps from self to other, um, from myth to politics, um, and yet always repeating with very little variation, repeating that phrase, as you said, a single kind of beam. You know, and what I think is interesting um, – is that um, at the same time, and here's a, yet another paradox, I think it sort of says it's a profound inventory in many ways of the bracken of which life is made from chemo ports to, uh, to Bibles on desks. Um, and it also says nothing. I mean, it's a pileup of... Um, of, of sort of jokes without punchlines in a way. I mean, it, it, uh, I think at the end it's, it's trying there to sort of celebrate that maybe celebrate something, celebrate isness, the business of the isness, the isness of the business. But, but, um, it's a laser that, you know, doesn't have a target really. It's just, it's a chant of being not of meaning in a way. Although I think I, I probably didn't, push the conviction all the way through. I think, um, 
if we'd ended with you folding origami aliens or something like that, then we really, we would have really just had this inventory without a destination. But, you know, I wanted, I guess I did want to sort of land it with some, some, I wanted to deliver a, a feeling um, beyond bemusement, you know, I think it's bemuse, it, it's amusing and bemusing throughout but at the end, it, it does, you know, it reaches out, it reaches up, it becomes somewhat exalted in its state. Um, it's affirmative, right? Maybe. Affirmative with some sadness. See, dude, the dialectic cannot be escaped, man. It is this and it is also this. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it weren't, I mean, I, I, it's interesting. I feel like kind of the final third really does get into that territory of just kind of not randomness exactly, but you're just kind of, you know, like blowing leaves, hitting snooze and spooning her, the chemo port, drinking kava, drinking wiper fluid, ballet shoes, hospital floors or polishing hospital floors. It It is like, you know, like I don't know you to be a, a janitor of hospitals. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? Like you are just kind of like, pointing to the existence of a phenomena i don't know you to be a fucking ballet dancer or to be a fucking ballet enthusiast Uh, (laughs) you're just kind of pointing toward the existence of these strange shoes that people put on to do beautiful dances and you know like it, it it does take on this strange character where it's like todd is just kind of talking about nothing but it, it it hits in the right moment of the poem is how I feel because it's just like I don't know I feel like I feel like poems like this it's all in the kind of little details and I feel like you've really you know you've really whittled it down to just the right shape and uh, it works and it 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 keeps you intrigued and it's always kind of shifting underneath your feet and it lands at a point where you're like huh okay. And it makes you kind of think bigger or something. And I don't know. It, it works for me. And it's a it's a tricky feat. I guess I want I guess I have one more question because like the the thing about a poem like this is, like I was saying, like the devil's in the details. Yet writing poems like this is very intoxicating, like the composition. Because you're just like mm-hmm. you this, you that. It, it's very fun to write a poem in this way. How, do you teach poems like this? Is this like a way that you approach creativity for your students and like do you have any ideas about kind of trans like doing the alchemy like transmitting how to do the alchemy of like yeah it's really fun and badass to just write the same beginning of a line over and over and over and create this kind of like rangy list of stuff but then taking that and honing it down and focusing it and making it sort of you know sort of have a power that's going to stay distilled rather than dissipate like i don't know sorry what do you think dude i i haven't done that it's so explicitly but i'm going to now that you mentioned (laughs) it i think that's a great idea um i talk about lists a lot you know i mean in whether i'm teaching freshman comp essentially or you know advanced form and theory i'm always saying give me a list lists are great they're efficient you know they have great rhythm um they're they're interesting. They're assertive. They're kind of authoritative. They, they really, I think it's a brilliant catalogs and lists, man. It's a great technique. And I don't, I don't think people do a lot of that. Um, 
I have never explicitly mentioned repetition like this. And I think I probably talk about repetition less than I should. The way I teach writing, it's, it's, um, basically it comes down to imitation, right? Like, so imitation and variation. So we are going to read, um, Ocean Vong's On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous. Um, so this is his book of autofiction, right? It's a novel, but it's a memoir. So he opens it with a letter to his mother. Well, so I would like all of us to write some autofiction. We'll begin it with, a, write a letter to someone sort of saying something you ne never said, but wish you had. Okay, now jump back into a scene like Ocean Vong does. I mean, I really okay. am very programmatic in a way let's write like they write. So we write, we write, a, if we read a 14 section poem, write a 14 section poem in which you do X, Y, and Z. Right. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I probably too imitative in a way, but I think it's important for us as readers to experience what we're reading as writers so that we're really able to have a conversation on both sides of the poem both as writers and as readers, as makers and as consumers. Um, and then I think it also gives us a permission to try something we wouldn't normally do, right? Like, so would you normally write like a 14 section poem? Would you normally write, begin a short story with a letter to your mother? I, I doubt it, you know? Uh -huh. um, and I think that this poem is an example of me sort of doing what I teach. Uh, you know, I read this poem by John McKernan that, had this really interesting repetition that was really cheeky and funny and weird. And, and I was like, I want to try that. And, uh, and I think I often approach writing and teaching that way again, perhaps to a fault, but, um, but I do definitely now want to want to set up a prompt for both myself and for students, you know, that say, uh, let's say to do that, you know, and I think I need to write another daily chant like real soon, man. I, I think I was, um, a lot more innovative three, four five years ago, a lot more um, experimental than I am right now. Right now it feels like a uh, narrower formal and, um, and subject matter uh, sort of concerns than I, than I had back then. So once again, baby, you bringing me the medicine <laughs> that my sick soul needs, man. You know, we all have our different ebbs and flows. It is a sad but true part of the game. And yeah, I don't know. I think that sounds pretty great. The program, because like I remember being in school and getting assignments and then being kind of what you described, but a little, a little fuzzier. And the problem with that is it's like, unless you had some reason to connect with the assignment, you weren't really sure like what you were supposed to do. It's just like, hey, write mm -hmm. a poem like this. And you're like, okay, but like, what? why <laughs> whereas like what you're describing like hey write a poem like this and like have these three like elements at play or whatever i don't know that's to mm -hmm. me seems a little more like it allows a student to access an approach to writing a little more cleanly than the poetry assignments that i was exposed to which were kind of vague you know kind of fuzzy <laughs> Difficult time making. 
references Bob Kerry, former United States Senator from the great state of Nebraska. Bob Kerry, in addition to being a former United States Senator, is also a war criminal. He led a SEAL team that killed 21 unarmed Vietnamese villagers in 1969. Women, children, elderly people. I fucking hate his guts. I hate war and I hate war criminals. And it angers me that you can do war crimes in our in our sick and twisted society and, and still become like a, a great leader. In my mind, people that oversee the fucking murder of unarmed villagers, these people shouldn't be leaders. That's just my fucking opinion. If you disagree with me, I disagree with you. Yet, so often they're allowed to be leaders. And in fact, people who are architects of much larger atrocities are often the most powerful people in our fucking society, and I hate it. So... When I read Todd's poem, which I love, it really bugged me that he had a line that marked admiration for Bob Carey. I should also note, it does mark Todd being unimpressed with Bob Carey when in Carey's physical presence. So it's not a I love Bob Carey thing. There is some ambiguity and uncertainty. However, it does not acknowledge the fact that Bob Carey is a war criminal. And that bugs me. And I brought this to Todd, and I tried to have a conversation with him about it. And it was a good conversation, but it didn't go as deep as I needed it to go to include in this podcast. So I cut it. But I have to acknowledge this, because I think that's my ethical imperative. And in so doing, I have created this ethical conundrum that I am now struggling to reckon with and articulate. And that is this. Okay, I need to do a quick timeout. The thing is, is when I say that I'm irked by Todd's poem failing to acknowledge Bob Carey is a war criminal, it sounds as though I'm critiquing Todd's poem and by extension Todd, but I'm not really. What I'm actually talking about is this larger social system wherein war criminals get away with evil shit and are never really questioned about it at all. In fact, it's this thing that people are afraid to speak about. and. Yeah, that pisses me off. And Todd's poem reminds me of that larger social issue. However, I don't think that Todd has written a poem that's unethical. I think Todd's poem is fucking beautiful. And I think his reference to Bob Carey is actually kind of a shit-talky, sick burn. I just wanted to bring this issue of war criminality and... The conversation that I attempted to have with Todd about that was lacking in my mind, but it's not because Todd isn't cognizant or interested in talking about these things. It's because I just kind of did a shitty job of steering the fucking boat of the conversation, and I feel annoyed at myself 
for that, but I'm trying to make up for my failure by adding this section into the podcast. What I want to do is I want to read an essay written by Christopher Hitchens in response to um, the facts of Bob Kerry's war crimes becoming a matter of national debate. Uh, the New York Times in 16 Minutes, they reported on the Tan Fong massacre in the early 2000s. And this was like a real uh, shit show for Bob Kerry. Because he had, that, up until that point, he had maintained that he was like a war hero. He received the Congressional Medal of Honor from Richard Nixon or, or something like that. Hitchens wrote an essay basically saying, fuck Bob Kerry, fuck the media, and most of all, fuck Richard Nixon and fuck Henry Kissinger. And I want to read this essay. However, Hitchens, a critic of the Vietnam War as a young man, as an older man in the, in the last years of his life, he became a advocate for the Iraq War. So my conundrum is, can I critique Todd for marking Kerry as a figure of admiration? Can I critique him for that while at the same time reading an essay by Christopher Hitchens, a man who advocated for a war that was just as vile and despicable as the Vietnam War, that was perpetrated by um, evil, soulless architects, uh, who were on the same level as Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger. Can I read that essay by, by a man who supported this awful thing while also taking issue with marking Kerry as a figure of admiration? And I, and I don't know the answer, honestly. It might not be right for me to read this Christopher Hitchens essay. It might be wrong. And I'd be curious what people think, but I'm going to read it because I just think it's a really fucking good essay. I think it gets out a lot of stuff that I find to be very personally important, but I just want to note that while Hitchens channels a very potent voice for moral bravery, the necessity of moral bravery, particularly in, particularly in moments where it's difficult to, to act with moral bravery. He himself, he engaged in acts of what I view to be moral cowardice, despicable acts that helped to, is a small, he played a small role, but he helped in sort of manufacturing the consent for the Iraq war. And, you know, that's a fucking, that's a, that's a shit, that's a shit thing to do. And fuck him. Rest in piss, Chris. Nonetheless, I'm going to read this fucking essay. Before I read this essay, I just want to say, like, trigger warning. There's a lot of kind of gruesome, there's not a lot, but there is gruesome 
language describing gruesome acts in this in this essay so if you are troubled by uh, gruesome language describing gruesome acts you might not want to listen to this I scanned the cheap effusions that followed the Bob Carey Tan Fong disclosures looking for one name Ron Ridenauer Ron was a GI who got wind of the My Lai massacre, followed up on what he'd heard, complained to the higher-ups, and, when that didn't work, blew the whistle. He was, by any known test, an American hero. Except that there is a strong tendency to hate people like Ron. By his simple and principled action, he destroyed the excuses of those who say, war is hell and what are you going to do? He was a Texas white boy and an uneducated draftee. Call him a grunt. He wouldn't have minded. His example demolishes both those who say that only combat-hardened men can judge other veterans and those who shiftily maintain that those who weren't actually there have no business making judgments. Ron wasn't at my lie but he'd seen enough to know that the rumors were probably true and he felt obliged to check them out and to risk his own skin to do so. Things happened rather fast in the village of Tan Fong on February 24, 1969. The platoon at My Lai had taken much of a day, relishing the opportunity to enact horrifying violence on defenseless villagers. If Bob Carey had been given more leisure, I don't think he would have raped any of the women, cut off any ears, disemboweled any babies, or tortured any prisoners. He never employed vile racial slurs when discussing the Vietnamese. Whenever the subject of war came up in Washington during his tenure as a senator, he was a sane and lucid voice. And I should add that I know him somewhat, and that since... I'm a lowly adjunct professor at the new school. He is actually my president. By the end of his week before the cameras, however, I began to wish he wasn't. If you've had more than three decades to reflect on your misdeeds, and on top of that, several weeks of advance notice that said misdeeds would soon be a matter of national conversation, you don't have to rise to the Ron Ridenauer standard, but you must not disgrace it. It is, I suppose, possible that both Gerard Clan, a member of Carey's platoon and a man in possession of an unfortunate name, and the Vietnamese witnesses are all spinning the same false narrative. But that would be quite the coincidence, given that neither the New York Times nor 60 Minutes gave Klan and the Vietnamese witnesses any chance to compare notes. And then Kerry, confronted by the contradictions of his own account, said, The Vietnam government likes to routinely say how terrible Americans were. The Times and CBS are now collaborating in that effort. Nobody cared to report an even worse moment during Kerry's press conference which occurred when Amy Goodman asked him about the command responsibility for war crimes borne by the Nixon-Kissinger 
architects of the aggression in Southeast Asia. He was, after all, under orders in a, quote, free fire zone, end quote, to treat all civilians as potential cadavers and all cadavers as part of the enemy, quote, body count, end quote. I can appreciate that Kerry might not have wanted to seem to shift responsibility. The Rittenauer standard makes it plain you can't be ordered to commit crimes against humanity. However, such a standard must not be twisted for the purposes of moral relativism. Carey answered Goodman's inescapable question by focusing entirely on his own need to get well, and thus excused himself and his political superiors. The date of the Tan Fong massacre is almost unbearable to contemplate. February 24th, 1969, about a month after Nixon took the oath of office, two months after he asked Kissinger to be his national security advisor, three months after the South Vietnamese military junta withdrew from the Paris peace negotiations, four months after the Nixon campaign made a covert approach to that same junta in order to incite it to do so and to take out an illegal and treasonous mortgage on another four years of war. One must, of course, sympathize with Kerry's pain. Only a few weeks after Tan Fong, Kerry lost a healthy limb to Nixon's sick design. But even the most tentative judgment requires we give moral priority to the uncountable number of Vietnamese, Cambodians, and Laotians who were immolated as a result of the same despicable policy. We should also abandon easy, non-judgmental relativism and give moral priority to men like Hugh Thompson, Lawrence Colburn, and Glenn Andriata. These three were flying over Mylai in their helicopter on March 16, 1968, and saw Charlie Company butchering the inhabitants with no, quote, enemy in sight. Thompson not only grounded his chopper between the remaining civilians and his fellow Americans, he drew his weapon and told the murderers to back off. This was no impulsive gesture. He took some civilians away with him and then returned. Andriata, who was killed three weeks later, found a small child in one of the corpse-choked ditches and managed to save him. Exactly 30 years after the atrocity, Thompson, Colburn, and posthumously Andriata were awarded the Soldier's Medal. It's the highest award you can get for an action that doesn't involve engaging the enemy. There was no mention of their awkward bravery in the recent coverage either, though as far as was possible, these three men lived up to one of our current dopey mantras, which is to leave no child behind. In Tan Fong, Bob Carey left a pile of dead children behind, yet his official statement was entirely about himself. It did not come clean about what happened. It did not contain one word of contrition, nor did it contain any sympathy for the victims. 
It was internally inconsistent. The war, he said, hadn't become unpopular until 1969. Whatever this was supposed to mean, it didn't explain his accepting a Medal of Honor from Richard Nixon on May 14, 1970, in a ceremony that he now claims he knew was a tawdry and stagey bid to bolster public opinion for the war conducted in the immediate aftermath of the assault on Cambodia and the killings of peaceful protesters at Kent State and Jackson State. Speaking of universities, I was ashamed to read the statement put out by the authorities at the new school. Here it is in full. The Board of Trustees gives its unqualified support to Bob Carey. It is hard for most of us to imagine the horrors of war. War is hell. Traumatic events take place and their terrible effects last a lifetime. We should all recognize the agony that Bob has gone through. We should also recognize that Bob's heroism and integrity have been demonstrated on many occasions. The Board of Trustees stands behind Bob. I try to teach English to humorous and intelligent students. I could use this pathetic text as a case study in subliterate euphemism. What about Bob? Leave no cliche behind. But it's worse than it looks. Notice the insistence that only Carrie's feelings count. And notice the insinuation that wartime actions are above moral distinction or discrimination. The new school, founded by anti-militarist defectors from the then-conformist Columbia University at the end of the First World War, became the host campus for dozens of anti-Nazi refugee scholars in the succeeding decades. It gave podiums to Eric Fromm and Hannah Arendt in lecture rooms where the nature of political evil was thoroughly discussed. It still runs democracy programs all over the world. Its student body is multinational and always has been. A word or two about the slaughtered Vietnamese would not have been out of place. But this graceless little handout didn't even refer to them. The statement is a direct insult to everybody at the school and a surreptitious invitation to a creepy kind of secondhand complicity in murder. I have no wish to hurt Bob Carey's feelings, but it's weird of him to act as if he's facing a firing squad when in reality he's the object of limitless empathy. The truth of the matter is I have no idea what these many occasions of heroism and integrity have been. I'm assuming, perhaps incorrectly, that the new school board of trustees aren't counting the Tanfong massacre as an occasion of heroism and integrity. He was a fairly decent senator, but as a senator, he showed a pronounced tendency of wanting to have things both ways, a tendency that is currently shining very, very brightly. Then again, it's perhaps true that being a hypocrite is part of the politician's job description. They all do it, of course, but then... They needn't expect moist tributes for their non-existent heroism and integrity. 
I ask you to think again of Ridenour, Thompson, Colburn, Andriata, names that are barely known, names of men who would have been ashamed to leave a ditch full of women and children behind them, or to watch such a ditch being filled and say and do nothing. And think of what a great wall we'd have to build if we intended to inscribe all the names of the Vietnamese dead. There's no possible repair or apology that could measure up to such a vast crime. But this must not mean a culture of stupid lenience and self-pity in which the only wounds to be healed are those of the perpetrators or of their obedient servants. How wonderful that at last we are forgiving the people of Vietnam for what we did to them. There are war crimes, and there is the crime of war. And it's ethically null to say that only veterans can pronounce on either. Curry was not caught in an ambush or suddenly placed in a hopeless situation. He led a stealthy, deliberate incursion into other people's homes. And the first act of those under his command was to slit the throats of an elderly couple and three children to keep them from making a sound. Kerry now says he didn't enter that particular hooch before, during, or after. Something of an oversight for the team leader whose job it was to ascertain the nature of the opposition. He says it was a moonless night. The U.S. Naval Observatory says there was a 60% disk until an hour after the squad had finished up. Kerry's after-action report on Tan Fong, for which he received a Bronze Star citation, reads in a vile code compounded of cruelty and falsification, 21 VCKIABC. That stands for 21 Viet Cong killed in action according to body count. Did he accept that medal as part of coming to terms with how haunting it all was? The humanoid who came up with the shady term Vietnam Syndrome was, of course, Henry Kissinger, who had every reason to try to change the subject from his own hideous responsibility. But even now, the president of a humanist academy takes up that same pseudo-neutral tone of therapy babble and quasi-confessional healing instead of demanding the Truth and Justice Commission that might establish what we owe to the people he killed as well as what we could and should do about the still unpunished and still untroubled people who directed him to slay them in their sleep. So yeah, that's the Hitchens essay. And reading it, I still have mixed feelings about reading a Christopher Hitchens essay because of the reasons I outlined before. But I will say that one thing that I think is true is that real shit or truth or whatever it like transcends its author in a way. And 
a lot of the things that Christopher Hitchens is saying in this essay, I think could be pointed right back at him and he would struggle to respond honestly. I think that if Amy Goodman of Democracy Now were able to question Christopher Hitchens about his support for the Iraq war, he would struggle to answer honestly the same way Bob Kerry struggled to answer honestly when Amy Goodman asked him about his war crimes in Vietnam and the evil and despicable policies of Kissinger and Nixon that enabled those war crimes to take place. Um, so that I think is maybe the, the saving grace is I think we can read this essay and still feel like a fuck Christopher Hitchens attitude because his essay is actually a fierce criticism of the position that he would later adapt via the Iraq war. And you know, I don't know. Um, however, like if you disagree, let me know because, um, I don't know. I don't want to uh, glorify Islamophobia or Islamophobes. This is not something I want to do. There are probably some people among you here who fancy yourself as having leftist revolutionary credentials. In fact, I can tell that you do from the zoo noises you make. And the, and the scars you can demonstrate from your long underground twilight struggle against Dick Cheney. But while you're masturbating in that manner... I'm going to have to deal with this hypocrite Hitchens. He talks about the death of soldiers in an occupation army at the hands of those resisting them. He supported the Algerian resistance in its bitter battle against French occupation, which cost a million lives. And he supported the FLN, who conducted the most bitter, unremitting, unrelenting military struggle, which would today be described and was then by the French described as terrorist. And when Ahmed Ben Bella, the leader of the Algerian revolution, was asked why he was placing bombs in baby carriages and leaving them in the soup to explode amongst the French forces and their collaborators. He answered, if the French will give us some of their helicopters, some of their aeroplanes, we will give them our baby carriages. Isn't that the same situation today that Mr. Hitchens' friends are the ones with all the tomahawks, all the Apaches? Isn't it odd that they should choose as the names of their weapons the totems of the Native American population that they remorselessly massacred in centuries gone by? The Iraqi people have only themselves with which to fight this foreign occupation. This hypocrite crying tears for the American army in Iraq supported the struggle of the Vietnamese people from the first to the last 
as they killed 58,000 American soldiers in Vietnam. He opposed the American war in Vietnam and supported those fighting against it. Today, he supports the American occupation of Iraq and seeks to slander those fighting against it. You stab friends, now I got enemies. You should keep them close, now they dead to me. You stab friends, now I got enemies. Enemies, yes, so sad. They said I would never get this far. Think that we don't see who you are. Nothing to the bank. Ha, ha, ha. I said I'm just talking too much, blah, blah, blah So, where did y'all go? When I was shit broke, couldn't even buy smokes Now your mama needs tickets to my stadium show She love it when she hear me on the It's 
turn this shit around So don't try and tell me that you're happy for me now You stab friends, now I got enemies Used to keep them close, now they dead to me Money tend to show all the tendencies Enemies, yeah, so sad Sometimes, every time they let me It's too